let me start by telling you what we're doing here tonight. This is pro-life training, meaning it's not just a talk about pro-life. It's not just pro-life people patting other pro-life people on the back. For the pro-life person, this is meant to equip you, to train you so that you can change other people's minds. You know how to answer their objections and how to approach them. Uh, For the pro-choice person, this ought to convince you. And you could listen to this presentation and ask yourself, did they answer my objections? Did they convince me and give it some thought and be rational and hopefully just reasonable about it and see if your reasons aren't dealt with themselves? We're actually going to be doing this in three stages. So the first talk tonight is going to be about the case for pro-life. And it is an ironclad, logical, rational case for why everyone ought to be pro-life. The second talk is going to be answering pro-choice objections, common objections, difficult objections, whether it's the emotional stuff or the intellectual stuff. We'll be addressing those in the second talk. And then the third talk tonight is going to be about tactics, conversational tactics, how to approach people, how to engage in conversations, what types of questions to ask um, You know, when you're, when you're talking to grandma on social media or if you're talking to uh, your college-educated buddy. And so that's what we're doing tonight because these issues matter. Second to the gospel of Jesus Christ, in my mind, is the issue of pro-life, the issue of abortion. And I've thought in my mind, what if I was back in time? What if I was back during the time of the Holocaust? Would I have had the courage, if I lived in Germany, to stand up and preach boldly against the atrocities that were taking place? If I lived back in earlier times when slavery was being promoted by my neighbors, would I, as a Christian, have the courage to stand up and suffer the wrath and ire of others to help change the culture to stop the atrocities? That's the question. And so tonight, it's time to wake up and for us to learn how to wake up the rest of the culture and to have the courage to do it because boldness and courage is contagious. And if you can do it, you can encourage others to do it too. So tonight, actually, our speaker is not me. It's going to be Aaron Brake. And Aaron Brake is a, um, he got his MA in apologetics from Biola University in La Mirada, California. He's a speaker and writer with the Life Training Institute. And I encourage you, as you're hearing his thoughtful, logical case for pro-life, to listen well, to take notes. I strongly encourage you to take notes. This isn't a lecture. This is more like boot camp to prepare you that you might share these things with others. So let's welcome Aaron. Thank you, Mike, so much for that introduction. Let me say to start, there is so much planning and preparation that goes into an event like this. And I just want to say thank you to Pastors Gary, uh, Mike, Nathan, everyone else who put in so much uh, time and effort to prepare for tonight. Thank you to Hosanna Christian Fellowship for hosting this event. And thanks to you for taking time out of your busy schedules to be here as we talk about this important moral topic. I want to begin tonight by showing a short video. And as you watch this, ask yourself how you might respond to the claims being made. My epiphany or breakthrough to provide abortions came about while listening to a sermon Uh, by Dr. Martin Luther King. In that sermon, he described what made the Good Samaritan good. And in substance, what made that person good was to ask, what will happen to this person if I don't stop to help? So I became more concerned about what happens to my patients when abortion care is not available than what might happen to me for providing the care, even though I knew that many people who shared my Christian identity wouldn't agree with my decision to do so. 
there needs to be the deconstruction of what I call the false equivalency of the whole pro-life, pro-choice rhetoric. Uh, that's a misnomer. There is pro-abortion and anti-abortion. People who are anti-abortion are pro-fetus, uh, but that often leads them to be uh, against the lives of women. To be pro-abortion, which I am, is not uh, abortion should happen uh, because it is a good thing. It's not a good thing or a bad thing. It's a biologic reality. But I am for women having access to the services that they need. So we'll have to reframe the conversation to have an honest disagreement, um, which means that we'll have to deal with facts. People who uh, uh, oppose abortion say life begins at conception. That's a non-biologic understanding because when we look at how pregnancy occurs, conception occurs when a sperm meets an egg. You can't have a, a, a live pregnancy if you don't have a live sperm meeting a live egg. And so if the sperm's alive and the egg's alive, that means that life begins before conception. Life is a process and not an event. You can't answer religious questions with scientific answers. You can't answer scientific questions with religious answers. I think Dr. King said it best that science gives mankind knowledge, which is power. Religion gives mankind wisdom, which is control. The two are not enemies. Now, Dr. Willie Parker is an abortion doctor who claims to be a Christian and recently authored a book entitled Life's Work, A Moral Argument for Choice. In his book, he states he has performed over 10,000 abortions. He believes this is God's will for his life and considers this his calling and ministry. So here's a question for you. How many of you who consider yourself pro-life know how to give a well-reasoned and articulate response to the claims of Dr. Parker and other pro-abortion choice advocates? My talk tonight is dealing with pro-life apologetics. Now, apologetics doesn't mean you run around and say you're sorry all the time. That's what husbands do. Rather, apologists give a defense for what they believe and provide reasons for why they believe it. In other words, they make a case for what they believe is true. So I am part of a pro-life organization called Life Training Institute, and my role as a speaker and apologist is to help train Christians and other pro-life advocates to make a persuasive case for the pro-life view and defend that view in the marketplace of ideas. My goal tonight is to help equip you to make an intelligent and gracious case for life in defense of unborn human beings. So first, why should we even talk about abortion in the first place? Let me give you three reasons very quickly. First, because the stakes are so high in this debate. Now this is true whether you consider yourself pro-life or pro-choice. Let's think about this for a minute. If the pro-choice view is correct, then women have a fundamental right to abortion, and pro-lifers are attempting to pass laws which could be considered oppressive, misogynistic, and interfere, interfere what they can and cannot do with their own body or their bodily autonomy. On the other hand, if the pro-life view is correct, then that means that since 1973, we have put to death nearly 60 million of the most vulnerable and defenseless members of the human community in the United States alone. That's nearly 3,000 every day or one abortion every 30 seconds. Second reason, because a persuasive, logical defense of the pro-life position is rarely heard. The pro-life view can often be caricatured as sort of a religious, fundamentalist, anti-science, and anti-woman position but nothing could be further from the truth. 
This debate is not about who can yell or scream the loudest or who has the cleverest cliche. It is about discovering the truth of the matter. And so my goal tonight is to present a well-reasoned, articulate, and winsome case for the pro-life view that is argued from both science and philosophy. Each one of us as pro-life advocates needs to be equipped to engage. Third, because scripture requires us to do so. In Luke 10, we read about the parable of the Good Samaritan and how we are to love our neighbor, not just in thought and deed, but in action. When it comes to the unborn who are in the womb, the question we must ask is, is the unborn my neighbor? The answer to that question is yes, if. If what? If the unborn are human beings. And if that's the case, we have a responsibility to love and protect them and defend their right to life. Unlike what Dr. Parker says in the opening video, if the unborn are human beings, then loving our unborn neighbors cannot possibly include killing them simply because they are unwanted. Now, as I'm sure you know, the topic of abortion can be very contentious and divisive. There are all sorts of distractions that can enter into the debate. So I want to very quickly address two of those. First, the abortion debate is not about gender politics. There are some pro-abortion choice, pro choice advocates who would say, I shouldn't even be speaking on this issue. After all, I'm a man, and abortion is a woman's issue. The first thing to point out in response to that is to say, arguments don't have gender. A pro-life woman could just as easily stand here and give you the exact same presentation, arguments, and evidence for the pro-life view. Gender is irrelevant when it comes to the truth of the matter or speaking out against injustice. We need both men and women to give a voice to the voiceless and to help defend the defenseless. Christopher Kayser points out in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, there is simply no such thing as the women's perspective on abortion or the experience of women with abortion. There is no female perspective on this issue any more than there is a male perspective or a brown-eyed person's perspective. In other words, women disagree on the issue of abortion just as men do. Further, if men are not allowed to address the abortion issue, then this is all the more reason to overturn Roe v. Wade. After all, that case was decided by nine male Supreme Court justices. This debate is also not about condemning people. There are many women and men who suffer from post-abortive guilt. Women who have had abortions and men who have perhaps paid for an abortion or maybe pressured a girlfriend into getting one. The answer to this guilt is not further condemnation, and that's not my purpose here tonight. Nor is the answer to guilt denial. The answer to guilt is forgiveness and redemption and healing, and that is found in Jesus Christ alone. And so if you are here tonight or you are watching this online and that describes you, you don't need an excuse. You need an exchange, just as all of us do. Your sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. God is ready to forgive the sin of abortion just like other sins if we are willing to confess and repent and place our faith in Jesus for salvation. So tonight, while I am largely dealing with the intellectual side of abortion, I don't want what I am saying to come across as cold or calloused. And if you need to speak with someone, we have pastors here who are available. Okay, now that we have some of the preliminaries out of the way, let me start by saying this. 
the reason I am pro-life is very simple. I am pro-life because it is wrong to kill innocent human beings simply because they are unwanted in the way and can't defend themselves. Now, some of you might hear that and think it is an extreme oversimplification of the abortion debate. It is not that simple because abortion is much more complicated than that. After all, abortion is a very complex issue. There are so many things that we need to think about. We need to think about privacy. We need to think about choice. We need to think about the unwanted children. We need to think about economic hardship, so forth and so on. Not only that, but women can often face emotional and psychological trauma. I think the problem, however, is that this confuses psychological complexity with moral complexity. Let me explain what I mean by that. No one denies that abortion may be a psychologically complex issue. Women may struggle mentally and emotionally with their decision regarding abortion. But it doesn't follow from that that abortion is morally complex. It is wrong to kill innocent human beings simply because they are unwanted. A mother suffering from postpartum depression may struggle psychologically about killing her newborn, but that doesn't mean killing newborns is somehow morally ambiguous. Christopher Kayser states again, if there is a human problem, we should seek to eliminate the problem, not eliminate the human. Now, Greg Kokel, in his book, Precious Unborn Human Persons, offers a helpful illustration that shows how the abortion debate can be clarified to one central question. Now, imagine for a moment that you are standing in your kitchen washing dishes, and your son or your daughter comes up behind you and says, Mommy, Daddy, can I kill this? Now, your back is turned. You're washing dishes, so you can't see what they're holding. What is the first question you are going to ask? What is it? What is it? Is it a cockroach? Is it a spider? Hey, go for it. Is it the next door neighbor's cat? Hold on a minute. We need to sit down and have a talk. If it's their younger brother or sister, it's time to get family counseling, right? So the question is, what is it? You cannot answer the question, can I kill this, until you answer the question, what is it? Well, when it comes to the issue of abortion, we cannot answer the question, can we kill the unborn, until we answer the prior question, what is the unborn? What is the unborn? That is the central question when it comes to the moral debate over abortion. Greg Kokel puts it this way in his book, if the unborn is not a human person, no justification for abortion is necessary. However, if the unborn is a human person, no justification is adequate. In other words, if the unborn is not a human person, why would we need to offer any justification at all? Just have the abortion. If abortion is really no different than having a tonsillectomy or an appendectomy, if abortion is simply the removal of an unwanted tissue mass, then what's the issue? But if the unborn is a human person, no justification is adequate. You cannot justify killing the unborn based on the reasons offered for elective abortion. So this is the central question. What is the unborn? 
And it is important that we remember in our conversations about abortion to keep the debate focused on this central question. What is the unborn? I cannot emphasize this enough. Let me quickly illustrate how this might play out in conversation. Now, a a pro-abortion choice advocate might say something like this. Well, abortion is really about privacy. It's a private decision made between a woman and her doctor. The pro-life advocate might respond, is it okay for a woman to kill her two-year-old as long as she does it in the privacy of her own home? Well, no, that's different. Well, why is it different? Well, because the two-year-old is a human being. So, that's the issue then, isn't it? What is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being like the two-year-old, then we are no more justified in killing them in the name of privacy than we are the two-year-old. Well, no, look, abortion is really about economics. I mean, there are a lot of women who cannot afford another child. Well, if a woman cannot afford her two-year-old, can she kill him? Well, no, that's different. Well, why is it different? Well, because the two-year-old is a human being. So, that's the issue then, isn't it? What is the unborn? If the unborn is a human being, we can't kill the unborn because of economics any more than we can the two-year-old. Well, look, some of these children are handicapped. And that's going to put the woman in a very difficult situation caring, caring for a handicapped child. Well, if she has a two-year-old who is handicapped, can she kill the two-year-old? Well, no, that's different. Why is it different? Because the two-year-old is a human being. So that's the issue then, isn't it? What is the unborn? If we protect the two-year-old and the unborn is a human being just like the two-year-old, then we're no more justified in killing them because they are handicapped. Well, look, a lot of these children are unwanted and they will grow up probably to be abused. Well, if a woman has a two-year-old who's unwanted, can she kill the two-year-old so that she's not abused as a five-year-old? Well, no, that's different. Why is it different? Well, because the two-year-old is a human being. So that's the issue, isn't it? What is the unborn? If the unborn is the human being like the two-year-old, you cannot kill them because they are unwanted any more than the two-year-old. Now, you'll notice in this conversation that I have not yet even begun to actually argue for the pro-life position. All I have done is cleared away some of the common distractions and side issues which don't address the moral question of abortion. And I have simplified the issue to the one question that matters. What is the unborn? That is what you need to do in your conversations. I also employed a very helpful tactic you will want to use in your conversations known as trot out the toddler. Now, here's how this works. Whenever you hear a reason presented for elective abortion, ask yourself if this particular justification works for killing a toddler. If not, then the argument assumes the unborn are not human. What you will find is that many of the popular sort of street-level arguments used to justify elective abortion that you hear so often in politics or social media, they all have the same problem. They beg the question by assuming the unborn are not human. So don't let them get away with that. Remember, what is the unborn is the question that has to be resolved. It is something that has to be argued for, not merely assumed. 
We cannot answer the question, can I kill this, until we answer the prior question, what is it? So the case for life I will be defending tonight can be put into the following argument. Now this is a very simple, straightforward argument that I use all the time and it can be easily memorized. So you need to memorize this argument. Number one, it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. Number two, elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Number three, therefore, elective abortion is wrong. Very simple, straightforward argument. Okay, memorize this argument. Let me point out two things about it. First, this is a valid argument. If it is true that it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent, being, innocent human being, and it is true that elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, then it follows that elective abortion is wrong. So the next question we have to ask is, are the premises or the statements, number one and two, are they true? So this first talk tonight will focus on defending the truth of both those statements. Second, this argument cannot be dismissed as quote-unquote religious. As Francis Beckwith has pointed out in his book, Politics for Christians, there really is no such thing as a religious argument. Okay? An argument is either valid or invalid, sound or unsound. In other words, it is either a good argument or it is not. What you'll find in conversations sometimes is that some people will attempt to simply dismiss your argument or your point of view by calling it religious so that they don't have to actually interact with it. But that is the intellectually lazy approach. A secular pro-life advocate could just as easily use and defend this very same argument. In fact, many of them do. Finally, let me define what I mean by elective abortion. Now, by abortion, I mean the intentional killing of a human being. And as we will see further on in the presentation, this definition really should be uncontroversial. Now, what about elective? By elective abortions, I mean those abortions which are not medically necessary to save the mother's life. The vast majority of abortions, around 90%, are obtained for socioeconomic reasons. Some people ask the question, well, what about when the life of the mother is in danger? This is most commonly seen in the case of ectopic pregnancies. Ectopic pregnancies occur when conception has taken place, but the embryo implants somewhere, such as in the fallopian tube, rather than traveling down and implanting in the uterine wall. So as the embryo grows, the tube will burst and result in internal hemorrhaging for the woman. Now, tragically, in these cases, there's nothing we can do to save the life of the unborn. But if we don't do anything, it is possible the woman may hemorrhage and die. So the question is, what is the greatest moral good we can do in these situations? Well, pro-life advocates agree with the principle that it is better to save one life than to lose two. But I don't even consider these surgeries abortion because the intent is different. The intent is not to directly kill the embryo, but rather to save the life of the mother. So while the death of the unborn is foreseen, it is not intended as it is with elective abortion. The intent is, in these cases is to save the life of the mother. So by elective abortion, again, I mean those abortions not necessary to save the life of the mother. Now, <clears throat> most people agree with the first statement 
in this argument, that it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being. But we'll come back to that a little later. So let's start by looking at the second statement of our argument. Elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. Now I can sum up the evidence this way. The science of embryology establishes that from the earliest stages of development, the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings. It's true that the unborn are not fully mature or developed yet, but they are whole human beings nonetheless. Let's look at what embryologists have to say concerning this. In their text, Human Embryology and Teratology, the authors state, although life is a continuous process, fertilization, which incidentally is not a moment, is a critical landmark because under ordinary circumstances, a new genetically distinct human organism is formed when the chromosomes of the male and female pronuclei blend in the oocyte. The developing human, clinically oriented embryology, the authors state, human development begins at fertilization when a sperm fuses with an oocyte to form a single cell, the zygote. This highly specialized totipotent cell marks the beginning of each of us as a unique individual. The zygote divides many times and becomes progressively transformed into a multicellular human being through cell division, migration, growth, and differentiation. Those same authors in their book, Before We Are Born, Essentials of Embryology, say this concerning the definition of zygote. Zygote, this cell formed by the union of an oocyte and a sperm, is the beginning of a new human being, i.e. an embryo. Dr. Patton, in his book, Human Embryology, the formation, maturation, and meeting of a male and female sex cell are all preliminary to their actual union into a combined cell or zygote, which definitely marks the beginning of a new individual. In other words, you have 23 chromosomes from the mother and 23 chromosomes from the father, which come together to form a new genetically distinct living whole human being. This is what science tells us. This is something even the more sophisticated pro-abortion choice advocates, advocates acknowledge, that the unborn are members of the human community. For example, Peter Singer, who is well known for his promotion of infanticide in certain situations, says this, it is possible to give human being a precise meaning. We can use it as equivalent to member of the species Homo sapiens, whether a being is a member of a given species is something that can be determined scientifically by an examination of the nature of the chromosomes and the cells of living organisms. In this sense, there is no doubt that from the first moments of its existence, an embryo conceived from human sperm and eggs is a human being. And the same is true of the most profoundly and irreparably intellectually disabled human being. David Boonin, another pro-abortion choice advocate, in his book, A Defense of Abortion, says this, perhaps the most straightforward relation between you and me on the one hand and every human fetus on the other is this, all are living members of the same species, homo sapiens. A human fetus, after all, is simply a human being at a very early stage in his or her development. So again, to summarize, what the science of embryology tells us is that each of us as individuals began to exist at conception, as distinct, living, whole human beings. In other words, you didn't come from an embryo, you once were 
an embryo. You began as a human being and will remain so until death. Now, what does it mean when I say that the unborn are distinct, living, and whole human beings? Let's look at each one of these. First of all, distinct. The unborn is genetically distinct from both parents. It is not part of the mother, like a kidney or an appendix. It possesses its own unique structural chromosomes and actively directs his or her own internal self-development and maturation. The unborn is also living. The unborn meets the criteria for life. It is a living organism. It is growing, it is metabolizing, and it reacts to stimuli. In other words, dead things don't grow, metabolize, or react to stimuli. But it is also whole. Nothing is added to the unborn after conception, such as genetic information or programming. The unborn is whole and complete. All the unborn needs to continue developing is time, nourishment, and a proper environment, just like every other human being. Now, a philosopher by the name of Richard Stith points out that one of the reasons there is often a disconnect in dialogue between pro-life and pro-choice advocates has to do with failing to understand the difference between construction and development. Construction and development. Now, let me illustrate this by saying, suppose that we went down to a car factory and we were standing on the manufacturer line. And as the car was being built, we saw the first two metal plates come together. How many of you would say that we have a car at that point? I don't think anyone. I mean, maybe that could be turned into a car, but maybe it could be a refrigerator or a stove or, or who knows what else. So as we travel down the assembly line, we see that the frame is put on and the wheels, but still no engine. How many would say that we have a car at that point. Okay, as we travel down the line again, now the engine is put in, now the body is placed on, now it's ready to roll off the assembly line. How many would say that we have a car at that point? Probably more of you, correct? Well, this is how people think about abortion and the unborn. They think that the unborn is sort of constructed externally, piece by piece. And so pro-abortion choice advocates, it doesn't make sense to them when you say that the unborn is a whole living being because obviously it's not fully developed yet. But what philosopher Richard Stith does is he provides another example that more adequately illustrates what the unborn does. So here's another story. Imagine for a second that we are on a safari in the Mexican jungle, okay? And you have a Polaroid camera. How many of you remember the Polaroid cameras? Okay, you take a picture, the film comes out, you have to wait like two months for it to develop, right? Now, we are on this Mexican jungle safari and we are trying to capture a picture of a black jaguar. And lo and behold, as we are in the tram, a black jaguar jumps out of the jungle and you have your Polaroid camera there. You perfectly get, you time the shot perfectly and you get this picture of a black jaguar, right? I mean, these things are extremely rare. This picture is probably worth a lot of money. Now that picture comes out, and all you can see on there is a brown smudge. Now I take that picture from your camera, and I tear it up immediately. What would your reaction be? You would probably be very upset. And I would say to you, well, why are you upset? There wasn't a black jaguar there. 
It was just a brown smudge. How would you respond to me? Well, you might respond to me by saying, no, the jaguar was there. It just needed time to develop. So here's the point. Many people think of the unborn like a car, constructed piece by piece. But the unborn is not constructed externally from the outside, but rather from conception is a whole human being that actively guides and directs its own internal self-development. Now, no one is arguing that the unborn is fully developed, but neither is a newborn for that matter. But the unborn is a whole human being nonetheless. In other words, you didn't come from an embryo, you once were an embryo. And like the Polaroid picture, you were there at those early stages of development. We just couldn't see you yet. All you needed was time to develop. Finally, the unborn is human. The unborn has human parents and a human genetic signature. It is not a cat being or a dog being, but a human being. It is a human organism. If someone wants to deny that the unborn is a human being, they have to explain how two human beings can produce offspring that isn't a human, but then somehow later becomes one. So again, the unborn from conception is a distinct living and whole human being. This is what the science of embryology teaches us. So, so far as we've looked at embryology, which tells us that individual human beings begin to exist at conception, that supports the second statement of our argument, since it would mean that elective abortion kills an innocent human being. But science has limits. While science tells us the unborn are human, science cannot tell us how to treat the unborn any more than it can tell us how to treat newborns or adults. So what about this first statement, that it is wrong to intentionally kill an innocent human being? Well, this statement may seem obvious, but there are some pro-abortion choice advocates who attempt to get around this by arguing that it is okay to kill the unborn because while the unborn may be a human being, they are not a human person. Now, whenever you hear this, the question you should always ask is this. What's the difference? What is the difference between a human being and a human person? If you are going to say that there is a certain group of human beings that we can kill because they don't qualify as human persons, then you better have an answer to that question. Because that scenario has been played out numerous times throughout history, and it never ends well for that group of human beings who are, who are deemed to not count as one of us. In these situations, pro-abortion choice advocates will usually offer up certain qualities or characteristics or properties that they believe disqualify the unborn from being human persons. So you will hear them say things like, well, the unborn doesn't look human, or it's too small. The unborn isn't developed enough, or the unborn is still dependent on the mother for life. All of these differences pointed out by pro-abortion choice advocates Differences between the unborn human being you once were and the adult human being you are today can be placed in one of four categories. And not one of these differences is morally relevant or can serve as justification for killing you back then, but not now. Stephen Schwartz, in his book, The Moral Question of Abortion, summarizes these differences with the acronym SLED. Size, 
level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. Memorize this acronym because you'll use it often. So let's look at each one of these differences and see if they can serve as justification for elective abortion. Okay, first, what about size? Now, it's true that the unborn are smaller than newborns and adults, but why is that relevant? Is it our size that gives us value or our right to life? Men are generally larger than women. Does that mean that men possess more value or a greater right to life than women do? I think we can understand that size does not equal value. Even my children understand this. In fact, in a Dr. Seuss cartoon, Horton Hears a Who, the character Horton throughout that movie repeats this phrase, a person is a person no matter how small. Well, what about level of development? It's true that the unborn are less developed than you and I, but again, why is this relevant? Newborns are less developed than toddlers. Toddlers are less developed than adolescents. Adolescents are less developed than adults. If our value is based on development, does that mean it is worse to kill an adult than a newborn? If our value or our right to life is based on development, then there is nothing to prevent the strong from killing the weak. In fact, isn't it true that those members of the human community who are less developed and thereby weaker and more defenseless are also those who are more needful and worthy of our protection. Isn't this why we are horrified by the nature of crimes against children? We realize that children need to be protected and not exploited. And if little children need our protection all the more, why not the unborn even more so? What about environment? Now, it's true that the unborn are inside the mother's womb, but why is that relevant? Where you are has no bearing on who you are. Each of us changes our location every day. Do we somehow become more or less valuable, more or less human? How does an eight-inch journey down the birth canal change the nature of the unborn from non-human to human? There's nothing magical or mysterious about the birthing process that grants us value or a right to life. If the unborn are not already human, merely changing their location can't make them valuable. Finally, degree of dependency. It's true that the unborn are dependent on their mothers, but why is this relevant? Newborns may be dependent on their mothers as well. Does that mean we can kill them? What about adults who are dependent on insulin or kidney dialysis? Are they somehow less human or less valuable because of their dependency? While it is true we may be dependent on others for our survival, we are not dependent on others for our value. So here's the question. What is it that makes us valuable? In short, pro-life advocates argue that each of us as human beings are equal by nature, not function. In other words, each one of us is valuable simply in light of what we are, human beings who share a common human nature. We are not valuable based on some function we can perform. But if that is the case then the unborn are included as well as valuable members of the human community since they too share our common human nature. Scott Klusendorf in his book, The Case for Life, states this, Opponents of the pro-life view assert without justification the belief that strong and independent humans have basic human rights while small and dependent ones do not. 
this view is elitist. It violates the principle that once made political liberalism great, a commitment to protect the most vulnerable members of the human community. Now, pro-life advocates, on the other hand, argue that no human being, regardless of size, level of development, environment, or degree of dependency, should be excluded from the human community. In other words, our view of humanity is inclusive and wide open to all, especially to those who are small, vulnerable, and defenseless. On July 1st, 1854, Lincoln wrote this small fragment to address some of the popular arguments put forward by pro-slavery choice advocates who argued that whites should have the right to enslave blacks based on superficial qualities and characteristics such as color and intellect. We can learn a lot from Lincoln's logic and how he demonstrates the bankruptcy of certain pro-slavery choice arguments. This is what Lincoln said. You say A is white and B is black. It is color then, the lighter having the right to enslave the darker? Take care. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with a fairer skin than your own. You do not mean color exactly. You mean the whites are intellectually the superiors of the blacks and therefore have the right to enslave them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a slave to the first man you meet with an intellect superior to your own. But say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to enslave another. Very well. And if he can make it his interest, he has the right to enslave you. Now Lincoln's point is this. This is really important. If you try to establish human rights or human value or personhood, by appealing to a set of arbitrary degreed properties which carry no moral weight or significance. Properties such as color and intellect which none of us share equally, then you end up undermining human rights and value for everyone. Well, what pro-slavery choice advocates did in the past, pro-abortion choice advocates do today. Only instead of arguing that blacks are non-persons based on color and intellect and can therefore be enslaved, pro-abortion choice advocates argue the unborn are non-persons based on size, level of development, and dependency and can therefore be killed. But the reasoning of pro-abortion choice advocates today is just as flawed as that of the pro-slavery choice argument advocates then. So if Lincoln were alive today, and were to address the current abortion debate, using that same logic, he might say something like this. You say A is big and B is small. It is size then, the larger having the right to kill the smaller. Take care. By this rule, you are to be a victim to the first man you meet with a larger body than your own. You do not mean size exactly. You mean human persons are developmentally the superiors of the unborn and therefore have the right to kill them? Take care again. By this rule, you are to be a victim to the first man you meet with a development superior to your own. But say you, it is a question of interest. And if you can make it your interest, you have the right to kill the unborn. Very well. And if another can make it his interest, he has the right to kill you. Scott Klusendorf in his book, The Case for Life, says, in the past, 
we used to discriminate on the basis of skin color and gender and still do at times. But now with elective abortion, we discriminate on the basis of size, level of development, location, and degree of dependency. We've simply swapped one form of bigotry for another. Steve Wagner, who is with another great pro-life organization, Justice for All, offers a very helpful way for us to think more clearly about the issue of human equality. He says something like this. As you look around the room tonight, what is it that makes all of us deserving of equal treatment and possessors of the same basic rights? Each one of us in this room is different. We are different races and sexes. We possess different abilities and functions. And we have different beliefs and convictions. So what is it? If each of us is to be treated equally and we all possess the same basic human rights, there has to be some quality or characteristic we all share equally in common. So what is it? There is only one quality we all have equally. We're all human. And being human is not a degreed property. It's not something you are more or less of. You are either human or you aren't. We all have a human nature and we all have it equally. But if that's the case, if it is our humanity that grounds our equality and value and rights, then the unborn are included as well as equal and valuable members of the human community, as well as possessors of basic rights from the time they come into existence at conception. Stephen goes on to say, why are sexism and racism wrong? Isn't it because they pick out a surface difference, such as gender or skin color, and ignore the underlying similarity all of us share? We should treat women and men, African Americans and whites, as equal and protect them from discrimination. Why? Because they all have a human nature. But if the unborn also has that same human nature, shouldn't we protect her as well? Now, I'm going to give you a bit of a disclaimer here. I'm going to play a short 55-second video clip showing abortion. And I want to warn you that this video is graphic. You do not have to watch this video if you do not want to. You can look down or you can avert your eyes and no one will think less of you. There's only instrumental music in the video. Uh, but if you do choose to watch, what you will see in this video are the results of abortion from the first, second, and third trimester. Now, I want to explain very quickly why I think this is important. The reason pro-life advocates use graphic images is because it is important to restore meaning to the word abortion. When people hear the word abortion, what they often think of are perhaps large crowds picketing outside an abortion clinic, holding signs, maybe even pro-life and pro-choice advocates yelling at one another, because those are the images that are put before us in the media and other venues when abortion is being discussed. But that is not abortion. What you will see in this video is abortion. Now, I can stand up here and give you a scientific and a philosophical defense of the pro-life view, but it is important that we understand what exactly we are talking about. If you have ever seen movies such as The Passion of the Christ or Schindler's List, you understand how images have the ability to convey a message words alone cannot. 
So the goal here is not to manipulate you emotionally, but rather to educate and to convey the truth better than words can. So if you choose to watch this video, the question is not, are these images emotional? They are. The question is, are they true? Greg Cunningham of the Center for Bioethical Reform states, if something is so horrifying we can't stand to look at it, perhaps we shouldn't be tolerating it. Christopher Kazor, in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, says, history provides strong evidence in favor of an inclusive society in which all human beings are respected as persons having dignity as opposed to an exclusive society. Indeed, when considered in light of history, it seems apparent that every single time the performance view has been chosen over the endowment view, and what he means by that is just your value comes from your function rather than your nature. Every time that happens, gross moral mistakes were made in which one half was permitted to dispose of the other at will. Men exploiting women, whites selling blacks, the young dispatching the old, the rich utilizing the poor, the healthy overpowering the sickly. Do we really have reason to believe that for the very first time in human history, we are justified in treating some human beings as less than fully persons? Or will we be judged by history as just one more episode in the long line of exploitation of the powerful over the weak? So how do we take all of this information so far and summarize it into a one-minute soundbite that clearly and persuasively defends the pro-life view? I want you to imagine for a moment that we are five months into the future. It's Thanksgiving, and you are with your family gathered around the table. In between the bites of turkey and mashed potatoes, Aunt Betty or Cousin Jack looks at you and asks, why are you pro-life? How can we give a succinct, articulate response in one minute or less that makes the case for life? Well, you might say something like this. The reason I am pro-life is because the science of embryology establishes that from the earliest stages of development, you were a distinct, living, and whole human being. And even though you have grown and developed since that time, your essential nature as a human being has remained the same. In fact, there are only four differences between the adult human being you are today and the unborn human being 
you were then. Size, level of development, environment, and degree of dependency. Not one of these differences is morally relevant or can serve as justification for killing you back then, but not today. That's because your value as a human being isn't based on how big you are, how developed you are, or your dependency. If that's the case, then none of us in this room are equal in terms of human rights because some of us are bigger, some of us are more or less developed, and some of us are more or less dependent. Rather, each of us as human beings are valuable and share a common right to life simply in light of being what we are, human beings who share a common human nature. Okay? You can do that. You can help change hearts and minds regarding abortion, and it starts with you and me. Thank you very much. I'm going to have Mike come up. Okay, so what you've just heard is the overall case for pro-life. And pretty much from here on out, we're just going to continue to come back to the stuff you've heard. It's going gonna, it's gonna to rehash it. It's going to remind you of it. It'll be like hearing it afresh. And it's going to get drilled in there, um, several of these points. And what we'll do next is we're going to answer common objections. These are things you've heard before. And these are things you'll hear again. And if you can learn how to respond to them, then you can be a really effective person in having that conversation where the back and forth goes down and maybe not the person you're talking to, but maybe the person listening in has their mind changed <laughs> because uh, this, this is very effective stuff. So uh, let's, let's welcome Aaron back. This second part again is going to be about answering, primarily about answering objections that you will get as you stand promoting a pro-life viewpoint. Well, thank you again. You guys having fun yet? Okay. All right. So just to summarize what we went over in the first presentation, remember, we need to simplify the debate to the central question, what is the unborn? We need to clear away distractions and red herrings that often come into the debate. We need to argue for the humanity of the unborn from the science of embryology. And we need to present a philosophical case that argues there is no morally relevant difference between the adult human being you are today and the unborn human being you were back then that would justify killing you back then. So now that we have laid out our basic pro-life case, I want to look at six bad ways that pro-abortion choice advocates attempt to argue for elective abortion. Number one, they assume rather than argue. They assume rather than argue. Now, remember our tactic from earlier, trot out the toddler, okay? Many of the most common street-level pro-abortion choice arguments or objections you will hear all have one thing in common. They beg the question in assuming the unborn is not a human being. So whenever you hear a reason given for elective abortion, ask yourself if this particular justification works for killing a toddler. If not, they are assuming the unborn aren't human. So, for example, the, one, the arguments we looked at over privacy or choice or economics, all of those beg the question. What about this one? Back alley abortions. Some pro-abortion choice advocates might say, well, look, the law cannot stop all abortions. And if abortion is made illegal, women will be forced to get dangerous illegal ones. Now, how does this example beg the question? Well, let's use trot out the toddler. Suppose a group of mothers were taking their toddlers into the back alley to kill them. But in the process of killing them, 
mothers were being hurt because they were using old rusty knives and were contracting tetanus. Should the government in this situation make it safe for mothers to kill their toddlers by providing new, clean, sharp knives? After all, I'm sure we can all agree that killing toddlers should be safe, legal, and rare. Well, of course not. Why? Because toddlers are human beings. In other words, what the back alley abortion argument is actually saying is that because some human beings die attempting to kill other human beings, the government should make it safe and legal for them to do so. But why should the law be faulted for making it riskier for one group of human beings to intentionally kill another group of innocent human beings? This argument assumes the unborn are not human. Further, it's true that the law cannot stop all abortions. Laws against rape and murder can't stop all rapes and murder either. But that doesn't justify legalizing these behaviors. And it's the same with abortion. Finally, every death from self-induced abortion is a tragedy. Every one. But no one is forcing women to have back alley abortions. They choose to have them. And as the pro-life community, we need to surround these women and give them the help they need. And we are doing that in many cases. Crisis pregnancy centers outnumber abortion clinics in this country two to one. And at these crisis pregnancy centers, women are provided with prenatal and postnatal care, food, clothing, adoption services, and a lot of other things. The second bad way to argue for abortion, they attack rather than argue. Now, in my opening case for life, I already addressed one way that male pro-life advocates are attacked, and that is by attacking their gender rather than their arguments. But there are other ways that pro-life advocates may be attacked and an assortment of distractions that can enter into this conversation. So let me give you a few examples of this. How many of you have heard this before? Pro-life advocates have no right to oppose abortion unless they are willing to adopt all of the unwanted children. Okay, here's a question. How does it follow that an alleged unwillingness to adopt, number one, shows the unborn are not human, and number two, justifies killing them? Well, it doesn't. In other words, let's just assume that this is true. Let's assume that pro-lifers are not willing to adopt. What follows from that? It doesn't follow that the unborn are not human, and it doesn't follow that we are therefore justified in killing them. So right away, we know that this objection, like other personal attacks, is a red herring. Here's another question. How does it follow that an alleged unwillingness to adopt means pro-life advocates cannot speak out against the moral evil of intentionally killing innocent human beings? Imagine if I were to say this. Unless you are willing to marry my wife and adopt my children, you have no right to oppose me beating them when I get home. Well, of course, that's ridiculous. We certainly can't kill toddlers because they are unwanted. So again, this argument begs the question by assuming the unborn are not human. Or what if we were discussing slavery and a slave owner attempted to argue, unless you are willing to feed and house all of the freed slaves, you have no right to oppose slavery. Or suppose we were discussing human trafficking and I said, unless you are willing to adopt all of the children freed from human trafficking, you have no right to oppose it. Well, of course, again, those examples are ridiculous. 
when we change the moral topic that is under discussion, you can easily see why the objection is silly. The fact of the matter is that there are over one million families in this country waiting to adopt, many of which are, of course, pro-life advocates. So this objection falls flat on its face. What about this one? Pro-life advocates are too narrow and should broaden their focus on other social issues, perhaps poverty, human trafficking, or AIDS. So again, let's just assume this is true. And we need to ask the question, well, what follows? How does it follow, number one, that the unborn are not human, and number two, that we are therefore justified in killing them? It doesn't. Can't it be the case that abortion is wrong, even if pro-life advocates fail to fulfill other obligations? But there's more to be said here. How does it follow that because pro-life advocates oppose killing innocent human beings, they must take personal responsibility for fighting every possible societal evil? What if I were to say this? You know that American Cancer Society? Did you know that they only focus on cancer? Like, what's up with that? I mean, don't they know that there are a lot of other diseases and problems in society that they could be focusing their attention on? But of course, none of us say that. We all recognize that the American Cancer Society is doing a great good and that in order for them to be effective, they must focus their time and research on one issue, not many. Well, it's no different for pro-life advocates. Finally, while many issues are important, not every issue carries the same moral weight. Okay? Recycling is important, but it doesn't carry the same moral weight as dismembering human beings in the womb. Abortion is not the only issue any more than slavery was the only issue in 1860 or killing Jews was the only issue in the 1940s. But each of them was the dominant issue of their day. And I believe that abortion is the dominant issue of our day. What about this one? Pro-life advocates should work to reduce abortions by focusing on its underlying causes. Again, let's just assume that pro-life advocates should focus more on underlying causes. Let's assume this is true. How does it follow again, number one, that the unborn are not human, and number two, that we are justified in killing them? It doesn't. So this, once again, is a red herring. Imagine that I was to argue that while no one likes spousal abuse, the real underlying cause is psychological. And so rather than making spousal abuse illegal, what we should do is we should keep it legal and we should treat the underlying causes by requiring the state to provide free counseling and anger management classes for men. After all, I think we can all agree that spousal abuse should be safe, legal, and rare. Well, again, that's, of course, that's ridiculous. When we change the moral topic under discussion, you see why the objection is silly. What the pro-abortion choice advocate is arguing in this case is that we should keep it legal to kill innocent human beings in the womb while focusing on the underlying causes that lead to the killing. But what sense does that make? Every immoral activity may have underlying causes, including rape, murder, and theft. That doesn't mean that we should legalize everything and focus on underlying causes. Finally, why are some pro-abortion choice advocates concerned with reducing abortions? 
If abortion doesn't intentionally kill an innocent human being, why should we care how many happen each year? It seems to me that only if elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being should we be concerned with reducing them. So that's the second bad way. They attack rather than argue. Here's the the third bad way to argue for abortion. They assert rather than argue. They assert rather than argue. An assertion is not an argument. And it's important to know, know the difference. An assertion is simply a claim or statement that is declared with no reason or evidence to support it. An argument is a conclusion that is supported with reason and evidence. Often in conversations, pro-abortion choice advocates will simply make assertions rather than arguments. And those assertions need to be challenged. For example, you might hear this, women have the right to choose. Now the question you should always ask in response to this is, choose what? Because saying women have a right to choose is really an incomplete thought. What is it that is being chosen? Now, pro-life advocates are vigorously pro-choice on all sorts of women's issues. I mean, I certainly believe in a woman's right to choose all sorts of things. I believe in a woman's right to choose her own doctor, where she wants to go to school, who she wants to marry, where she wants to live, etc. But before we can know whether or not we have a right to choose something, we have to know what it is that's being chosen. In this case, it is abortion. So then we must ask the question, well, what is abortion? If elective abortion is the intentional killing of an innocent human being, why should anyone have that right? That is something that has to be argued for, not merely assumed. Choose what and what is abortion? Here's the fourth bad way. They appeal to absolute bodily autonomy. They appeal to absolute bodily autonomy. The often repeated phrase, my body, my choice, is probably the most popular way to voice arguments from bodily autonomy. After all, a woman should have absolute and total control over her own body and should be able to do anything she wants with it, right? Well, maybe not. The problem with arguments from bodily autonomy is that they are only persuasive if a woman's right to control her own body is absolute. Meaning she can do whatever she wants with her own body regardless of how it affects other human beings, including killing her unborn unborn child in the case of elective abortion. But bodily autonomy is not absolute. And this is ultimately the fatal flaw of my body, my choice arguments. And I think each one of us realizes this when we stop and think about it. So first, let me make a couple of preliminary observations and then give you some examples of why I think bodily autonomy is not absolute. First, bodily autonomy is false on the face of it. A woman does not have the right to do whatever she wants with her own body and neither does a man. We have plenty of laws which restrict our freedom and what we can do with our own bodies. For example, we have laws against assault and battery, we have laws against murder, laws against rape, laws against indecent exposure, etc. I can't walk up to someone and punch them in the face and then say, well, I have a right to do what I want with my own body. More to the point, laws always restrict what we can and cannot do with our bodies when what we are doing brings harm to another individual. Well, this is exactly what is happening in the case of abortion where the mother's decision not only brings harm to her unborn, but kills them. This brings us to the second point. 
it should be obvious that there are two bodies, not just one, the mothers and the unborn. So while the mother's body is certainly involved, it is not the mother's body that is being aborted. It is the body of her unborn who doesn't survive the abortion. This fact is again confirmed by science. The unborn has a unique, individual, and separate genetic code, a separate central nervous system, may have a different blood type, and in the case of a boy, a different gender. So the question again is not so much what a woman can do with her own body, as it is what should she be morally and legally permitted to do with her own body that affects the life of her unborn. Third, there are good reasons to reject absolute bodily autonomy. So when it comes to abortion, there are good reasons to reject bodily autonomy, and I want to give you several examples. Now, many of you perhaps have heard of the drug Accutane, which is used to treat acne. But Accutane is also known to cause severe fatal injury and birth defects if women take it while they are pregnant. So because of this, the FDA actually requires women of childbearing age to be on two forms of contraception if they are sexually active. They also require women to take two separate pregnancy tests prior to starting Accutane. And both tests must have negative results. Now, these laws are obviously limiting what a woman can and cannot do with her own body. But knowing the effects that Accutane can have on the unborn, we consider these reasonable restrictions on bodily autonomy because we have the safety of the child in mind. So what would we think then of a pregnant woman who knew the potential for fetal deformity and birth defects, but ignored the law and continued taking Accutane because she wanted to avoid acne? Or even worse, what if she did it intentionally to cause birth defects in her unborn child? Would we consider her a champion of women's rights? Or is there something wrong with that? Well, if you say that there is something wrong with that, you are already limiting bodily autonomy. Let me give you another example. In the 1950s and 60s, a drug named thalidomide was prescribed to pregnant women to help treat nausea and insomnia. It was discovered later that thalidomide causes severe birth defects, including being born with missing limbs. And so the drug is no longer legally available for women. Now, how would we react to a woman today who illegally obtains thalidomide and intentionally causes her child to be born without arms simply because she didn't want to feel nauseous while pregnant? Is she doing something wrong or is she simply exercising her right to bodily autonomy? Well, if bodily autonomy is absolute, then how can you object to her actions? After all, if she has the right to use lethal force to kill her unborn because of my body, my choice, why is it unreasonable to allow her to cause sublethal harm to her child by taking drugs to intentionally harm them? Although the unborn would be harmed, he or she wouldn't be harmed as much as in elective abortion. But if when you think about those examples, you have certain moral intuitions that tell you it is wrong to intentionally harm the unborn in spite of bodily autonomy, then that gives us reason to question bodily autonomy as absolute. In other words, there are limits. And if there are limits, 
then it doesn't seem elective abortion can be justified simply by appealing to my body, my choice. Especially when we consider that elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being. If bodily autonomy doesn't justify intentionally harming the unborn, then it can't justify intentionally killing them. This has led many, including some pro-abortion choice advocates, to reject arguments based on bodily autonomy. Marianne Warren is one of them. She's a pro-choice philosopher. She says this, The appeal to the right to control one's body, which is generally construed as a property right, is at best a rather feeble argument for the permissibility of abortion. Mere ownership does not give me the right to kill innocent people whom I find on my property. And indeed, I am apt to be held responsible if such people injure themselves while on my property. It is equally unclear that I have any moral right to expel an innocent person from my property when I know that doing so will result in his death. Now finally, let me give you one last example. Trent Horn, in his book, Persuasive Pro-Life, provides a thought experiment which he refers to as deadly transfer. And it helps illustrate the problem with bodily autonomy. Imagine we had an infant who was born prematurely and was being kept alive in an incubator in the neonatal unit. Now, nearly everyone agrees that it would be wrong to kill the child in the incubator. But suppose we had the technology to transfer the premature infant from the incubator back into the womb of the mother. Could the mother then kill the child through abortion simply based on my body, my choice? After all, the child is back in her womb. Well, if bodily autonomy is absolute, then there's nothing wrong with the mother killing her child after being transferred back into the womb. But that seems ridiculous. How does merely changing location from outside the womb to inside the womb turn a valuable human being that deserves to be protected into a disposable piece of property that can be killed? Now, all it takes is one of these examples to refute the idea that bodily autonomy is absolute. The same type of reasoning that is used to justify my body, my choice, has also been used to defend other injustices in the past. Slave owners were allowed to treat their slaves as property, my property, my choice. Trent Horn points out another example from the 19th century in a district court in North Carolina where it was ruled legally permissible for a man to beat his wife as long as he did not cause her permanent injury. My home, my wife, my choice. But it is never okay to treat human beings like property. And just because you have control or ownership over a location doesn't give you the right to hurt innocent human beings who live there. And this is why these types of bodily autonomy arguments ultimately fail. Number five, fifth bad way to argue for abortion. They confuse functioning as a human with being one. They confuse functioning as a human with being one. Now, given what we already know about the humanity of the unborn, the next question we have to ask is this. Does each and every human being have an equal right to life or do only some have it in virtue of some characteristic which may come and go within the course of their lifetimes? Now, pro-life advocates argue 
that human beings are equal by nature, not by function, as I said earlier. In other words, you are not instrumentally valuable based on some function that you can perform. Rather, you are intrinsically valuable. You are valuable simply in light of being the kind of thing you are, a human being. Pro-life advocates maintain that every human being is a human person. But many pro-abortion choice advocates argue that in order to qualify as a valuable human person, you have to possess some property in addition to your humanity. Remember earlier we looked at the sled argument. So for example, pro-abortion choice advocates might say, well, the unborn don't yet have the ability to feel pain. And so they're not human persons. They don't have self-awareness or consciousness. So they are not human persons. They aren't viable so they don't qualify as persons. Or they don't have the ability to interact with the environment, so they are not persons, and therefore we can kill them. Whenever a critic offers a quality or characteristic that they believe makes human beings valuable and grants them a right to life, you should always ask this, why? Why is that morally relevant? As we did with the sled argument, why is size morally relevant? Why is level of development morally relevant? Why is it okay to kill human beings who don't possess X, whatever X may be, and not okay to kill human beings who do possess it? Again, if you are going to say that it is morally permissible to kill a group of human beings because they don't qualify as human persons, then you better have a meaningful answer to that question. Much of the time, what you will find is that these differences are just asserted, and they will continue to be asserted until they are challenged. Okay, so let's look at a couple examples. How many of you uh, heard this one before? Well, look, the unborn are not self-aware yet, so we can kill them. They don't qualify as human persons. How do we respond to this? Well, we might just respond by saying so. Why is, self-aware- why is self-awareness morally relevant? Why is that value-giving in the first place? This is something that has to be argued for, not merely asserted. Furthermore, this criterion proves too much because newborn babies are not self-aware either. Can we kill them? Some of you in this room right now are more or less self-aware than others. Some of you are barely hanging on right now trying to stay awake. Some of you are on a caffeine high. Okay? Does that mean that you are more or less valuable or have a greater or lesser right to life? Remember Lincoln's logic that we discussed earlier. If you try to establish value or personhood on a degreed property, a property that you can have more or less of, then that means your value and rights will come in degrees as well, depending on how much of the property you currently possess. And so what you end up doing is you end up undermining equal rights for everyone. What about this one? Well, the unborn are not yet viable, and so they do not qualify as human persons, and therefore we can kill them. Now, by viability, it is usually meant the ability to live outside the mother's womb. But again, why is this morally relevant? Viability is really just a measure of our medical and technological progress. The more our medical technology increases with time, the younger the age of viability becomes. So if we were trying to use viability as a standard for human value or a right to life, we run into some very absurd results. For example, if a child was born in 2007 at 22 weeks, 
she would be considered a full-fledged human person with a right to life because she is viable. But if that same child were born in 1907 at 30 weeks, she would be non-viable. And so we could have killed her. But that's ridiculous. Because when you are born has no bearing on who you are. Technology and time doesn't change the nature of the unborn, nor are they related to human value. Let me give you another example. Imagine a flight attendant who is 25 weeks pregnant. Now, before the flight takes off from the United States, the unborn is viable and considered a human being with value and a right to life. But mid-flight, as the flight attendant land, and as the flight attendant lands in a third world country, the unborn is no longer viable, and so we can kill him. When the flight attendant arrives back home, the unborn is viable again and magically becomes valuable with a right to life. But again, this is obviously silly. Viability measures technological progress, not our value. The fact that the unborn are vulnerable and dependent should cause us to have more care and concern for them, not less. Pro-abortion choice advocates are attempting to argue that because the unborn are more dependent and vulnerable, that we are therefore justified in killing them. But just like newborns who are still dependent on the mother, the more dependent you are, the more you need the protection of others. How much more the unborn who are the weakest and most defenseless members of the human family? Now, what if, as our medical technology increases, scientists are able to create artificial wombs, and the age of viability is now conception? Would pro-abortion choice advocates then fight to protect human life from the beginning? Finally, whether or not a human being is viable is always in relation to their environment. The unborn are in the womb, where they naturally belong. They are exactly where they are, where they are supposed to be. They are in the perfect environment for their continued growth and maturation. The womb was designed for them, and it is where all of us as human beings belong at that stage of development. Saying the unborn are not valuable human beings with a right to life because they cannot live outside their proper environment is no different than if I were to tie cinder blocks around your legs and throw you in the ocean, declaring you no longer to be a valuable human being with a right to life because you are not viable underwater. No matter your age or your level of development, viability is always dependent on our environment, and therefore it's not a good standard for grounding human value or a right to life. Now, many of you know who Stephen Hawking is. He is a brilliant scientist and a prolific writer. You also probably know that he suffers from a rare form of Lou Gehrig's disease, which keeps him bound to a wheelchair and heavily dependent on others he has lost the ability to physically interact with his environment on his own. But listen to what two biographers say about Hawking in their book. Stephen Hawking does not like to dwell too much on his disabilities and even less on his personal life. He would rather people thought of him as a scientist first, popular science writer second, and in all ways that matter, a normal human being with the same desires, drives, dreams, and ambitions as the next person. In other words, despite his disabilities, Hawking wants to be considered in all ways that matter a normal human being. Now, what if we were just to say to Hawking, well, I'm sorry, Stephen, but what makes human beings valuable is their ability to function and physically interact with their environment. 
I mean, let's be honest. If this were about survival of the fittest, you wouldn't last two seconds. Would we then be justified in killing Stephen based on our criteria for human personhood? Of course not. Stephen Hawking is still valuable and possesses a right to life, not because of his functional ability, but simply because he is human. But if that's the case, then the unborn should be included as well, based on their humanity. Whenever we attempt to separate human persons from non-persons, based on arbitrary qualities and characteristics, it allows the powerful to oppress the weak and justifies disposing human beings simply because they are in the way and can't defend themselves. But this is exactly what pro-abortion choice advocates are doing with the unborn. They are saying the unborn don't qualify as valuable human persons because they cannot yet do X, whatever X is. And therefore, we can kill them. But this confuses functioning as a human being with being one. And ultimately, it undermines human equality and value for all of us. Stephanie Gray from the Canadian Center for Bioethical Reform says this. The pro-choice view of personhood is human plus birth, or human plus consciousness, or human plus viability. But how is this different from those who say personhood is human plus white skin, or human plus male gender, or human plus an IQ higher than 70? Why not just saying being human is enough? The sixth bad way to argue for abortion. They hide behind the hard cases. They hide behind the hard cases. Now, one of the most difficult hard cases for pro-life advocates to address and which comes up in nearly every conversation is the question of rape. So pro-abortion choice advocates will say rape justifies abortion. One of the reasons that cases of rape and incest are difficult to address is because the women in these situations have been victims of a brutal, violent crime. Rape is a heinous evil, and we naturally want to show care and compassion and empathy in helping these women in any way we can, and we should. We need as individuals and as the church to surround these women offer our support, and help provide for their needs in any way we can. The pro-life movement is not just pro-child, but pro-woman as well. And this is one of the reasons, as I said earlier, that crisis pregnancy centers in this country outnumber abortion clinics two to one, providing support, shelter, prenatal and postnatal care, as well as adoption services for, for pregnant women who find themselves in difficult situations. In seeking to help these women, when it comes to rape and abortion, we have to ask the question, what is the moral and responsible outlet for all of these emotions and hurt in these difficult situations? Is it abortion? Well, that depends. Depends on what? Depends on how we answer the question, what is the unborn? If the unborn are human beings, then they are an innocent victim as well. It is the rapist who is the aggressor, not the unborn. So we are forced to ask another important question. How should a civil society treat human beings who remind us 
of a painful event? Is it okay to kill them so we can feel better? So in thinking about this, we again have to trot out the toddler. Imagine I have a two-year-old who was conceived through rape. Can I kill the toddler because their father was a rapist? Is it just and moral to put the child to death for the crime of the father? Well, you might say, well, no, that's different. Why is it different? Well, because the toddler is a human being. So we are back to the central question again, aren't we? What is the unborn? If the unborn is human like the toddler, why are we justified in killing the unborn because of the evil circumstances surrounding their conception any more than we are justified in killing the toddler? Now, I want you to think about this for a minute. If you answered that question, no. If you said, no, it is not okay to kill the toddler conceived through rape, then what that helps clarify is that it is not the evil circumstances surrounding conception that is the morally relevant factor in answering the question, can we kill this? Because if it was, then we could kill the toddler conceived through rape as well. Do you understand that? Rather, it shows that it is still our human nature that is doing the moral work with regard to abortion, even in the hard cases like rape. And I think that's correct. The reason is because how you are conceived has no bearing on who you are or your value, nor does it change the kind of thing you are, a human being. It is not the circumstances of your conception that is the issue, but rather the kind of thing that you are. You are still a human being. And if that's true, then the unborn are included as well as full-fledged members of the human community since they share with us that same human nature. Now, when it comes to the hard cases like rape, there are two types of people who ask this question, the learner and the crusader. Now, the learner is someone who is genuinely concerned for women who have been raped, and they are trying to work through the issue and resolve it rationally. They are trying to understand the pro-life view. But the crusader is different. The crusader is someone who just wants to make you look bad as a pro-life advocate by appealing to the hard cases so they can create a caricature of you as cruel and completely insensitive to women. One way you can tell the difference between a learner and a crusader is by asking a simple question. Scott Klusendorf in the book Case for Life says this, okay, I'm going to grant for the sake of discussion that we keep abortion legal in cases of rape. Will you join me in supporting legal restrictions on abortions done for socioeconomic reasons that, as studies on your side of the issue show, make up the overwhelming percentage of abortions? Now, if the answer to that question is no, then the follow-up question is this. Then why did you bring up rape, except to mislead us into thinking that you support abortion only in the hard cases. Now here's the point. If the crusader is someone who supports abortion as a fundamental right, that women can exercise anytime she wants for whatever reason, then it is disingenuous and intellectually dishonest to make an emotional appeal by asking about cases of rape. 
In fact, it's worse than that because what they are actually doing is exploiting the tragedy and the horror of rape for their own political gain so that they can score debate points. They need to defend their case with facts and arguments, not emotional appeals. Francis Beckwith, in his book, Defending Life, says this, to argue for abortion on demand from the hard cases of rape and incest is like trying to argue for the elimination of traffic laws from the fact that one might have to violate some of them in rare circumstances, such as when one's spouse or child needs to be rushed to the hospital. In other words, even if you could prove an exception, it doesn't prove a rule. Abortions due to rape are less than 1% of, of abortions that occur. So the pro-abortion choice position doesn't follow by appealing to the hard cases. Now, some may still ask the question, well, isn't this cruel and uncompassionate? Do pro-lifers lack compassion in this area? Again, Frank Beckwith in Defending Life states this, nothing could be further from the truth. It is the rapist who has already forced this woman to carry her child, not the pro-lifer. The pro-life advocate merely wants to prevent another innocent human being, the unborn entity, from being a victim of another violent and morally reprehensible act, abortion. For two wrongs do not make a right. What makes abortion evil is the same thing that makes rape evil. An innocent human person is brutally violated and dehumanized. Unwillingness to endorse unjustified homicide is no lack of compassion. In other words, if you were to ask someone, why is rape wrong? They might say something like this. Well, it's violent and brutal. It's dehumanizing. It is a gross infringement on bodily autonomy. It is the stronger and more powerful forcing his will on someone who is weaker, vulnerable, and defenseless. But that is exactly why abortion is wrong as well. If the unborn is a human being, then the child conceived through rape is someone who needs our care and compassion, just like the woman. We certainly wouldn't put the woman to death for the crime committed against her. Why then is it moral or just to put the unborn to death because his or her father was a rapist? Christopher Kayser, in his book, The Ethics of Abortion, says this. Obviously, pregnancy due to rape is horrendously difficult. The just rage felt by those who have been sexually assaulted needs to be fittingly discharged. But is abortion a proper outlet? Abortion cannot undo what has been done in rape. Abortion doesn't even punish the rapist for what he did. Instead, it harms an innocent human being. Some circumstances, including those created by the evil choices of others, can sometimes remove the category of the merely permissible, leaving us with a choice between morally wrong and the morally heroic. Women who find themselves in these situations and choose life are indeed moral heroes and should be celebrated as such. As a church, we need to come alongside them and help provide them with the care and support they need, finding humane solutions rather than encouraging them to eliminate the problem through the intentional death of their unborn children. For our last session, I want to turn to some practical conversation tips you can use when discuss, discussing the issue of abortion. Whether you are speaking face-to-face -face with friends and family, uh, 
participating in a pro-life outreach, or engaging others over social media. Abortion can be a very emotional, passionate topic for many people. So in dialoguing with others about this issue, we want to be sure and emphasize both grace and truth. Now, it is extremely important in conversations to know how to ask good questions. This is a skill that you can learn and develop with practice over time. Whenever you are able in conversation, try to ask good questions to help guide the conversation or emphasize a point rather than making a statement or assertion. So often you can accomplish the same goal by asking a well-thought-out question. And questions are often received better than blanket assertions. The reason for this is because a well-thought-out question can cause people to stop and think, allowing them to form the same conclusion in their mind rather than simply being told what to believe. And a person who comes to a conclusion on their own with a little guidance from a well-placed question is more likely to hold on to it and acknowledge its merit instead of being tempted to reject it outright. For example, compare the difference between making a blanket assertion such as, well, abortion is wrong and women shouldn't have the right to choose it, with questions such as, well, if abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, what would justify that choice? Can we kill human beings based on privacy, poverty, or because they are unwanted? If not, shouldn't we protect the unborn just as we do other human beings? Now, Greg Kokel has an excellent book entitled Tactics, in which he gives practical advice and strategies to employ in conversations with those who may disagree with you. Scott Klusendorf has a chapter in his book, The Case for Life, where he takes many of the principles and questions from Kokel and applies them to the abortion debate. So let's look at three important questions you can use in dialogue over the issue of abortion. And I know the question was asked, well, how do you even get into these conversations? Sometimes it's just as simple as bringing it up. Um, and that's what we do at Pro-Life Outreaches. We simply say, hey, what's your view on this? Uh, we had a table set out, for example, where the question was asked, should abortion remain legal? Yes or no? And so people would sign a poll, and then we would engage them in conversation. Hey, do you mind if I ask you, why did you sign yes on that? Um, you might bring tonight up in conversation later this week with a family member or a friend. Hey, I went to this uh, seminar, and I heard this pro-life speaker on the abortion issue. Have you ever thought about that issue? Um, what, what's your view and why do you think that? Ask good questions. The, the first question is, what do you mean by that? What do you mean by that? Now this is a clarification question that helps you understand what your critic thinks so that you don't misrepresent his view. At the same time, it forces him to think more clearly about his own statements. The purpose is to gather information so you can accurately understand his or her, her view. Uh, and this question often alone disarms the challenge. So, for example, someone might say, well, I believe in a woman's right to choose. How might you respond to that? Again, you ask the question, what do you mean by that? Well, what do you mean by right to choose? What is being chosen? If elective abortion intentionally kills an innocent human being, why should anyone have a right to choose that? Some people will just say, well, embryos are just a mass of cells. Well, what do you mean by mass of cells? 
can't every human being be described as a mass of cells? Abortion is a fundamental right. What do you mean by fundamental right? Uh, what type of right is abortion? Is it a legal right or a natural right? If it's only a legal right granted by the government, would you object if the government took it away? If so, why? If it is a natural right, how is it that females in the womb can have a natural right to abortion, but not a natural right to life? After all, isn't the right to life the most fundamental right which all others are based on? So as much as it is in, within your power, ask questions to help understand their view, the person who you're speaking with. Uh, what do you think about abortion? Uh, do you think women should have a right to abortion through all nine months of pregnancy? Do you think there should be any limits on abortion? Here's a second question. How did you come to that conclusion? Now this question is a bit more challenging. And a good general rule to remember in conversations is that whoever makes the claim bears the burden of proof. So this question helps place the burden of proof where it belongs on the critic who needs to give reasons for his claims. So for example, you might hear someone say, well, thousands of women died every year in the U.S. from illegal abortions. How might you respond to that? Well, you might just say, really? How did you come to that conclusion? Do you have any statistics to support that? Are you aware that even pro-abortion choice advocates have said this is false? Oh, look, no one can say which beliefs are right and which beliefs are wrong. Well, how did you come to that belief? And is that belief right? If you are saying it is right that no one can say which beliefs are right and wrong, isn't your statement self-refuting? No one knows when life begins. Well, how did you come to that conclusion? Are you aware of what embryologists have said concerning this issue? Are you willing to look at some quotes from embryologists that support the idea that a new, distinct, living and whole human being comes to be at conception? Even if we didn't know when life begins, shouldn't we err on the side of life since we might be killing an innocent human being? A third question you can ask, have you ever considered that? Now, this question is the most challenging, and it's important to re remember to remain gracious. This question is used to point out a flaw in reasoning or help show that the critic must pay too high a price to hold his view. So again, sometimes the claim is made, well, fetuses have no right to life because they are not self-aware. Well, have you ever considered that if self-awareness is what gives us value or a right to life, then newborns are disqualified and may be killed as well? Laws can't stop all abortions. Well, have you ever considered that laws can't stop all murder or rape either? Does this mean we should do away with those laws as well? How do you know that most women won't obey the law? Well, you're hypocritical because you don't want to adopt all of the unwanted babies. Well, have you ever considered that an unwillingness to adopt doesn't give an abortionist the right to kill? How do you know pro-lifers are not adopting them? Have you ever considered how bizarre it would sound if I said, unless you agree to adopt my toddler by noon tomorrow, I have the right to kill him? Did you know that there are over one million families waiting to adopt in this country? Abortion is a woman's issue. Well, have you ever considered that gender is irrelevant to truth? 
Have you ever considered that a female pro-life advocate could, just, could make the exact same arguments I am presenting? If men can't speak on the issue of abortion, should Roe v. Wade be overturned since that decision was made by nine male Supreme Court justices? So again, we are asking questions to help clarify our critics' view and to help uh, get to the central question, what is the unborn, and to point out problems with the pro-choice view. Okay, this is tip number two. Uh, listen and find common ground. We want to ask good questions, and then we want to listen and find common ground. Even though the issue of abortion can be incredibly divisive, divisive and contentious, you may be surprised how much common ground can be found between pro-life and pro-choice advocates. As much as possible, don't assume what someone believes. Instead, just ask them and listen to their response. Don't be in a rush to prove your point. Take the time to understand their view and find common ground you can build on. So here's an example. What do you think about late-term abortions? Should abortion be legal through all nine months for any reason? Now, in my conversations with people, I have found that many who self-identify as pro-choice still believe there should be limits when it comes to abortion. They believe there should be limits both in when a woman should be allowed to get an abortion and for what reasons. For example, many pro-choice advocates do not support abortions in the third trimester or for simply any reason whatsoever. So that is common ground that you can build on. And once you understand their view, you can ask them why they believe that. What about this question? Should men be prosecuted for killing a fetus? Uh, a majority of states already have laws against the intentional killing of a human fetus, except in cases of abortion. Here in California, you may remember the case of Scott Peterson, who killed his wife, an unborn child, and was convicted on two counts of murder. Yet, if Lacey Peterson had wanted an abortion, many people wouldn't have thought twice about it. But what's the difference in those two situations? It isn't the unborn. It's the very same unborn human being in both cases. The only difference is whether or not the unborn is wanted. In one case, Scott Peterson killed a wanted child. But in the other, Lacey Peterson is killing the very same child who is now unwanted. But why is being wanted morally relevant? Is being wanted what determines our value or right to life? The homeless are largely unwanted. Can we kill them? Well, no, that's different. Why is it different? Because the homeless are human beings. So if the unborn are human beings, why are we justified in killing them simply because they are unwanted? And so we're back to the one question that matters again. What is the unborn? So many pro-choice advocates would agree with this, that men should be prosecuted for killing a fetus. The question is why? What about this? What do you think about aborting a fetus simply because she is female? Now, this practice has been common in other countries such as China and India. Many people are repulsed by the idea of killing the unborn simply based on gender. So this is an area where pro-life and pro-choice advocates may again find common ground. It is also a question that can be used to challenge certain pro-choice arguments and expose inconsistencies. For example, if women have an absolute right to bodily autonomy, as we talked about earlier, how can we object if they choose to abort based on gender? My body, my choice seems to have 
some very immoral consequences when we take it to its logical conclusion. What about this question? Would you prefer fewer abortions? Often, pro-abortion choice advocates will say that abortion should be safe, legal, and rare. The first question to ask is, well, safe for whom? It certainly isn't safe for the unborn. It's lethal. So this, again, begs the question by assuming the unborn is not a human being. If the unborn are human beings, we shouldn't make it safe or legal for one group of human beings to kill another group of innocent human beings. Also, why should elective abortion be rare? If abortion is essentially no different than having your tonsils or appendix removed, what's the big deal? Again, just simply have the abortion. No one is championing, championing that a tonsillectomy should be safe, legal, and rare. On the other hand, if elective abortion kills an innocent human being, again, why should it be rare? Are we allowed to kill innocent human beings so long as we do it infrequently? So where do we go from here? Well, there are things that each of us can do. So in, su in summarizing everything that we've gone over tonight, I want to talk about a few of those. And Jeff did an excellent job uh, talking about Save the Storks, which is a great organization that you can help support. There are things that each of us can do, and each of us needs to be involved. Of course, we can pray, read, study. We can engage others in conversation to change hearts and minds regarding the issue of abortion. And after tonight, I hope you feel more confident and equipped to do that. We can volunteer time at crisis pregnancy centers, and we can help financially support pro-life organizations, such as Life Training Institute or Save the Storks. In addition, I want to give you three important long-term goals pro-life advocates can focus on. The first one is this. Recruit more full-time apologists. Recruit more full-time apologists. Greg Cunningham from the Center for Bioethical Reform says this. There are more people working full-time to kill babies than there are working full-time to save them. That's because killing babies is very profitable while saving them is very costly. So costly that large numbers of Americans who say they oppose abortion are not lifting a finger to stop it. And those that do lift a finger to stop it do just enough to solve the conscience, but not enough to stop the killing. Each one of us needs to get involved. I hope that tonight is not just a one-night event where you come here, you listen to me talk, you listen to Jeff talk, and you go away and that's it. That's, that's not the point of tonight. The point is to help teach and equip you so that now we can go out and do something regarding the issue of abortion that we can engage others in conversations, that we can help change hearts and minds, that we can become involved in pro-life organizations. Being involved in the pro-life movement, you are literally saving lives. And each one of us needs to be involved in helping do that. Number two, we need to systematically train our youth. And this is not just regarding the pro-life issue. This is regarding apologetics and theology in general. Our kids need to understand what they believe and why they believe it. We can't send them off to secular institutions and universities unprepared and expect them to re uh, retain a re robust uh, understanding of the Christian faith. Many who are leaving high school and going to college unprepared are abandoning the Christian faith. 
they are unprepared to answer the challenges of skepticism. And so not only do we need to train our youth in this area of pro-life apologetics, but theology in general, what we believe as Christians and why we believe it. Finally, we need to use visuals appropriately. We need to use visuals appropriately. Now, earlier tonight, I showed a 55-second video of abortion, not to condemn anyone or to manipulate you emotionally, but because of its value in restoring meaning to the word abortion. We should always introduce these graphic images with gentleness and respect, always warning people and never springing them on unsuspecting audiences. Educators acknowledge the value of graphic visuals when used properly. In fact, I'm not sure if many of you know, but producers of the movie Schindler's List donated a copy of the film to every high school in America in spite of its graphic content. Movie theaters also provided free screenings to over 2 million students in 40 states because educators were convinced that unless students saw the disturbing images, they would not understand or fully grasp the depravity and horrors of the Holocaust. Well, by the same token, it is intellectually dishonest to not show abortion for what it really is. If we can't stand to look at abortion for what it is, perhaps we shouldn't be tolerating it. So truth is the issue, and this is something even some pro-abortion choice advocates acknowledge. Naomi Wolf, who is a pro-choice feminist, said this, the pro-choice movement often treats with contempt the pro-lifers practice of holding up to our faces their disturbing graphics. But how can we charge that it is vile and repulsive for pro-lifers to brandish vile and repulsive images if the images are real? To insist that truth is in poor taste is the very height of hypocrisy. Besides, if these images are often the facts of the matter, and if we then claim that it is offensive for pro-choice women to be confronted with them, then we are making the judgment that women are too inherently weak to face the truth about which they have to make a grave decision. This view is unworthy of feminism. Scott Klusendorf says, pictures change the way people feel about abortion, while facts change the way they think. Both are vital in changing behavior. Many of you perhaps have never heard the story of Emmett Till. In 1955, Emmett was a 14-year-old black youth from Chicago who traveled to the town of Money, Mississippi to visit his cousin. Upon arrival, he bragged about his white girlfriends back in Chicago, which was unheard of in the South at that time. His cousin was shocked because blacks in Mississippi in the 1950s didn't make eye contact with whites, let alone date them. Well, later in that day, while in Bryant's grocery store, Emmett was dared by his cousin and his cousin's friends to flirt with the 21-year-old white married woman behind the counter. Now, reports vary regarding exactly what happened, but Emmett either whistled or said something mildly flirtatious to the woman and was immediately warned, warned after that that he was in big trouble. A few days later, Emmett was dragged at gunpoint from his uncle's home at 2 a.m. 
by the clerk's husband and another man who savagely beat Emmett and killed him with a single bullet to the head. Emmett's bloated corpse was found three days later in the Tallahatchie River. His face was partially crushed and beaten so badly that it was almost beyond recognition. Emmett's mother requested the body be shipped back to Chicago, where she announced that there would be an open casket funeral for her son. Despite the protest of some people, Emmett's mother said, I want the whole world to see what they did to my boy. The photo of Emmett's face in the open casket was published in Jet Magazine and is credited with helping launch the civil rights movement here in America. Now, I'm going to put up a picture from Jet Magazine that shows the open casket, and I just want to warn you that it is graphic. Emmett's mother said, I want the whole world to see what they did to my boy. Well, three months later in Montgomery, Alabama, Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus when ordered to do so. She said the image of Emmett Till gave her the courage to stand her ground. Ladies and gentlemen, it is time for Christians to open the casket on abortion. We should do it lovingly, but truthfully. We need to do it graciously, combining it with a robust, persuasive, intellectual defense of the pro-life view. But until we do that, Americans will continue to tolerate an injustice they never have to look at. Thank you. Why don't we close by, uh, by praying about this, uh, this very, very serious issue. Um, Father God, we acknowledge that this is a, a sin of our culture and our society around us, and it is a grievous and serious sin. We acknowledge that there are, there are countless people who we know, who we've met, whose hands we've who shook, who, who we've hugged and smiled at and talked to, who have committed abortions or supported them. We also know that the grace of Jesus Christ is enough and is the only thing that's enough for them. We pray that we would be ambassadors of Christ for those people, Lord. Give us the opportunity to reach out to them. Help us to do it well. But we also know, Lord, that there's a culture around us that is cold-hearted and dull, morally dull to these things. And we pray that we would be voices to help wake them up. To not only provide opportunities for change, but to provide reasons for change. And we, we pray we could do it. Give us courage, Lord. Give us boldness. Give us the ability, Lord, to step out. And we thank you so much, Lord, that there's a day coming when you will return and, and all injustice will end. In Jesus' name, amen. While I was dead, you sought me out and gave your life to me. There is no greater love than this to do what you did for me.